Well, hey, Mountain. I'm Kirk Bolin. I'm one of the worship pastors here, and I want to say uh, that we are one church that meets in three locations. So right now I want to say a shout-out to Edgewood and a big shout-out to the Bel Air campus. That's where I usually spend most of my Sunday mornings leading worship over at Bel Air. But it's great to be here today, and you might be thinking right now, hey, Kirk, you forgot your guitar. And, you know, and to be honest, I kind of kind of feel that way too a little bit. It feels pretty weird to be up, out, up here without the guitar on. So maybe when I'm talking at some point, if I'm trying to make a point, if I start playing a little air guitar or something, you're just going to have to hang with me and forgive me for it. Uh, but you know how it is with old habits sometimes. We'll, we'll just see how it goes, okay? Well, this summer, my family played a lot of the card game Crazy Eights. We just heard that song. Uh, and talked about Crazy Eights, and so my family played a lot of card games this summer, and Crazy Eights was one we played a lot of. You can see this picture here, and you probably noticed right away those Crazy Eights cards in my kids' hands. And, uh, you know, we really love playing Crazy Eights. We like it because it's a fast-paced game, and it's exciting. There's some strategy involved, but for the most part, it's just luck of the draw. And it's a game that my four-year-old son and I can play together, and we can both enjoy. So that's a pretty unique thing. It's a great game. We played a lot of Crazy Eights this summer. You're probably looking at this picture, too, and you're also noticing that leopard print couch. And you're like, hey, Kirk, that's a nice couch, man. And, uh, <laughs> but it's not, it's not my house. It's not my couch. Uh, but, you know, the more I look at it, it's, it's a pretty nice couch. I do kind of like it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to look at that picture and not notice that beautiful baby girl sitting on my wife's lap in that picture, and that is our daughter, Favor, and uh, she's actually the reason why we're sitting in front of that leopard print couch. You see, this picture was taken at a guest house in Uganda, and we spent 10 weeks this summer in Uganda completing the adoption of Favor, and so she's the reason why we're sitting there in front of that leopard print couch. Well, and many of you have been with us on that journey for the last few years. You've walked right beside us as we've done this, and it was a long process. And it was a really long process while we were in country in Uganda. There were days when we were really busy, when we were running to and from appointments at the embassy and with lawyers. And, but then there were days where we were just sitting around waiting for a phone call waiting for the next step to happen, waiting for papers to process. And during those days, we played a lot of Crazy Eights. <laughs> we played so much Crazy Eights, in fact, that we may never be able to play Crazy Eights again. We got pretty sick of the game by the end of it. And actually, we left the deck of cards in Uganda at the guest house for the, the next family to enjoy when they get there. So, uh, you know, either that we'll be so sick of it, we'll never play it again, or we'll play that game and we'll be really sentimental and we'll remember that time that we went to Africa to bring favor home. I want to show you a couple more pictures, and I'm just going to tell you right now, uh, unapologetically, that we're going to look at some pictures today, because I'm a proud dad, and, and so we're going to, you're going to see some pictures of my kids, but there's not going to be too many of them, I'm, so I'm just warning you now. Uh, so this next picture, this is the moment when they handed our daughter favor to my wife, Amanda, in the orphanage, and they took this picture at just the right moment. Somebody caught the right moment because about two seconds after this picture was taken the screaming started and and the screaming didn't stop for a long time and uh, it took a couple days but after a few days favor really bonded with my wife amanda 
And now she really loves her mama. And so there, for about three weeks, my wife couldn't even put her down at all, or Favor would just lose control. And that was actually a really great thing. We were really glad that that happened. And it took a few more weeks after that, some more time, and she finally came around to me and our sons, Asher and Amon. She realized we weren't that bad after all. So here's another picture. This was just a couple days before we were getting ready to come home. It's all three of our kids. Yeah, and, uh, and we were really anxious to get home with this, when this picture was taken. It was 4th of July. We were kind of homesick and, and missing our community here. But you know, it's great to be home now. And we've been home for a little bit over three weeks. And just as it took some time getting used to being in Uganda, we were there long enough that it's taken some time getting used to being home. And if you've ever been uh, to a country that's overwhelmed with poverty and spent time there, then you know that you come home with fresh eyes. You come home with a heightened awareness of the way that God is working all around the world, and you come home more in tune with American excess. You know, we've been home for three weeks, and it feels like we've had some time now to process everything that God has done in the last two and a half years and and the things that He's done in the last two months in specific. And you know, it's like that often that it's in hindsight that you can look back and really see the way that ways that God has moved. You can really see God's hand. What well, really was an epic journey. You know, back in 2013, we were challenged here at Mountain to find what the epic thing was that God would do in our lives. And for our family, that was a call to adoption. It's amazing to look back now, two and a half years later, and see how God was faithful all the way through, the ways that He was there with us the last two and a half years. If you want to hear some more of the backstory of that, of how we got to the adoption process and how we got to where we are today, there's a great video on the Mountain YouTube page. You can get on there and watch that sometime, and it'll get you filled in on the backstory a little bit. But we learned so much in this process. We learned that God really cares about orphans and underserved children all around the world. We also learned that a whole bunch of God's people really care about those same kids. You know, one group that really cares about those kids is here this week. It's uh, CFR, Christian Financial Resources, and it just so happens that they were here this week. It's coincidence that I'm talking. But CFR uh, partners with churches, and they also partner with uh, families that are adopting, and they partner with us in some pretty uh, significant ways financially. And so if you get a chance, go by and say hi to Darren out there in the lobby today. Uh, They're a great organization. You know, Psalm 68 tells us that God is a father to the fatherless. James 1.27 says that religion that God finds as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Matthew 18.5 says that whoever receives a child in my name receives me. Those are the words of Jesus. You know, we spent a month each day, that first month in Uganda, going to the orphanage each day. And over and over again, I found myself holding a runny-nosed orphan, saying to them, I love you, and God loves you, and I hope a great family finds you that's going to love you. 
we could really tell that people were praying for us while, while we were there because God kept showing up in surprising ways, sometimes unexplainable ways. And there were days when we were confronted with corruption, when there were difficulties, when there, were, when there was political tensions in the adoption process. And there were days when we all took turns getting sick and all the things that come with staying in a third world country. But even through all those difficulties, we saw God working. And then there were those days when God just showed up and he was, he, it was like He was saying, I just want to surprise you with my goodness. One of my favorite stories to tell is how, is how all three kids fell asleep in our custody hearing. Ten minutes into an hour and a half long custody hearing in a courtroom, all three kids fell asleep at lunchtime. Now, if you know how a four-year-old and a six-year-old boy can be at lunchtime, then you know how miraculous that, that was. It was clearly divine intervention. And I think in that moment that God just was showing off a little bit, and we looked like really good parents. So... Uh, well, so for the last five years, my family has sponsored a child in Uganda with World Vision. It's one of the things that led us to adopting from Uganda. And a few years ago, I got to go meet our sponsored child. And that was a great experience to go spend some time with this shy young boy. And so this time, with our whole family, we scheduled for all of us to go meet Gerald. And our sons were so excited to go meet meet this boy that they've written letters to and prayed for for five years, and it was a great experience. You know, we pulled up to Gerald's house, and we hardly recognized him because in the last four years, he's turned into this young teenage man full of confidence and joy, and we saw in that moment the difference that child sponsorship makes in the lives of children. It's never come up in any of the letters that we've written or the last time that I met Gerald, but his father is actually the pastor of the small church in their little village. And so after we ate lunch, we walked up the hill to the little church and we prayed together. And then all of a sudden, this spontaneous worship service happened as people from their village came out to see what the Mzungus, that's what they call white Americans, were doing in their church. We walked out of the church after that to realize we were in the most beautiful place we'd ever been. The church overlooks this lake. Here's a picture of it. And I know pictures don't do it justice at all. But it was like in that moment, standing on top of that hill, that God was saying to me, Kirk, you know, I did this. I brought you here. I'm in this. God also reminded us during those months in Uganda that we were made to live in community. We love that phrase that says, it takes a village to raise a child. We use that phrase a lot. And we like it because uh, that phrase expresses the need for the church and the family to work together to raise children that love the Lord. But you know what? It also takes a village just to be a person. And just to be a Christian. It takes... A village, And we're so thankful for the village here at Mountain that cares about kids all around the world and cares about kids right here so much. And we really missed this village while we were gone. But God put us in the middle of a pretty special village while we were in Uganda. And that village was a whole bunch of adopting families who really love God and who really love kids. One of those families that adopted from the same orphanage we worked with lives right here in Maryland, really close to here. And that was a special blessing because 
our kids will be able to grow up knowing each other. And they'll be able to understand each other in ways that no one else will because they're from the same orphanage. Another village that we became part of, another special community, was a guest house we stayed at in Kampala the last half of the trip. And Kampala is the capital city of Uganda, and a lot of the families that were staying there were Christian families, and we grew very close to them. And when there was a milestone to celebrate in the process for one family, when something good happened, we all got ice cream together, and we celebrated. And then when there were days when there was disappointment, or one family hit a bump in the road, or there was bad news, we all got ice cream, and we had a pity party together. So we ate a lot of ice cream together at that house. But we really became a village. And I can't imagine going through the process without those friends. And that's one of the reasons why we're so big on small groups here at Mountain. Because we know that we are made to live life together. And we couldn't have done this process without all of you. And we're so thankful for this church. This church has been so supportive and encouraging. So in a lot of ways, for me, the last few months have been crazy. Mostly a good kind of crazy. And we want to say thank you for praying with us and for us through all that craziness and, and as we were walking through this adoption journey. So we want to say thank you to the Mountain Village Again, we really couldn't have done it without you. Maybe today you feel like things in your life are pretty crazy. Crazy busy. Crazy fast. Crazy good. Or maybe just plain crazy. And the last few weeks we've been looking at this sermon in the Bible that Jesus gave. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon is really great because it gives us practical information on what it looks like to follow Jesus in the real world. How to connect the head and the heart, the intellect and the faith. And this specific section of this sermon that we're looking at, it's, it's a series of blessings that Jesus gives that outline what behavior and attitudes are blessed in a life of faith. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, peacemakers, the persecuted. And it's been a little crazy around here this summer. And today we're going to continue on on that crazy train and we're going to look at that beatitude in Matthew 5.8 that says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You know, I, I look at my daughter, Favor, and she's just over a year old now. And coming from an orphanage, she's been through some pretty crazy things in that first year of life. But I look at her and I see purity. And I see innocence. And if there's an infant in your life, then there's no doubt you've had that same experience. There is something special about the innocence and purity in a baby. And even though the world is messed up around them, it just doesn't seem to touch them yet. 
An infant smile may be the most contagious thing in the world. There's something special about their purity. Now, I know, and you know, that as we grow up, things happen that take away our purity. And one reason we treasure the purity and innocence of a child so much is we, because somewhere along the way, we know that it's something we've all lost. We've become jaded. With my children, I would do anything I could to preserve their purity or their innocence. And if there's a child in your life, a grandchild a niece, a nephew, or maybe you're an honorary auntie or uncle, then you know what I'm talking about. You would do anything. But there's a day that comes when that changes. When innocence is lost. And I'm praying for my family that that day is a long, long time from now. It's tough to talk about being pure in heart. Because deep down, I think we all know that we don't measure up. And maybe right now you're thinking, man, I don't fit the bill. If anybody knew how messed up I am, and you know, I think we all feel that sometimes. I think we all know that we're not pure, and whether that's because of things that we've done or things that have been done to us, pure just isn't how we would describe ourselves anymore. And there's some scriptures in the Bible that resonate with this dilemma. Proverbs 29 says this, Who can say, I have kept my heart pure, that I am clean without sin? Ecclesiastes 7.20 says this, it says, Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and does not sin. So, it's one thing we all have in common. You, me, we're all messed up. We're all tainted. We've all, somewhere along the way, lost our innocence. So what do you think about when you hear the word pure or purity? Things like gold and water we, we describe of as being pure when all of the contaminants have been removed. Now, one of my favorite uses of the word pure is in the phrase pure joy. It's a phrase we often associate with childhood again. And, you know, I uh, was reflecting on this phrase this week with Luke and we were talking about uh, pure joy in childhood, and he was sharing that for him, his experience of pure joy in childhood was when he first learned how to dunk a basketball in second grade. <laughs> Actually, he's not really that good. It wasn't second grade, it was third grade. You know, for me, though, it was, it was riding a bike for the first time without training wheels. And I think probably a lot of us, that might be the first thing we think of with that experience of pure joy. I see a lot of heads nodding right now. I think it's a pretty universal experience. 
But you know, there's nothing like that feeling when you're riding and you realize that you're balancing and you're pedaling. At some point, your parent let go of the seat and you didn't even realize it and you were doing it all on your own. And that is pure joy. I got to relive that a couple months ago with my oldest son, Asher. And here's another proud dad picture. Sorry, but, you know. So here's a picture of pure joy, and he's just so full of confidence right there. You know, I let go of the seat, and he just kept going. And he was so proud, and I was so proud, and all of a sudden, he was a big kid riding a two-wheel bike. You know, I was reflecting on my experience of riding a bike the first time with my parents this week, and uh, my dad reminded me that it didn't take very long after he let go of the seat that I crashed into the fence of the tennis court we were on. So even that moment of pure joy, that moment of purity was short-lived. So what do you think about when you hear the phrase, pure in heart? What do you think about when you hear the word, purity. One of the things we really enjoy about being home from Uganda is brushing our teeth in the bathroom sink. Now, I don't want to get into a debate today about water purity levels around here, but brushing my teeth in the bathroom sink is something I took for granted until I had to brush my teeth with a bottle of water for a few months. You know, for water to be pure, it has to go through a filtration process. And there's all sorts of methods and levels of water filtration. Have you ever tried to pick out a water filter? A few years ago, we installed a whole house water filtration system. And it's made a big difference in the taste of the water at our house. And we're hoping in the long run that it will make a big difference in our health. But that system, that filtration system, has a cartridge that needs to be changed every three months. That means four times a year, I'm confronted with the question, how much of the bad stuff am I going to let in? Is it worth the extra $10 for the next three months to remove all the cysts from the water? Or should I leave some of that stuff in the water and save $10? You know, I probably spend about an hour every three months trying to make up my mind on what filter I'm going to buy. And in the end, I always buy the same most expensive filter because I want the water that I drink to be as pure as possible. You know, that decision about water filtration at my house, it's a lot like a lot of the decisions we make in life. How much of the bad stuff am I going to let in? How much are you going to lie to your boss? How much are you going to fudge the numbers? I mean, it's just a little bit of gossip, right? The affair didn't go all the way. How much of the bad stuff are you going to let in? Maybe, maybe you're like me and you've become really good at rationalizing sin. Well, it's not as bad as what everybody else is doing. It's just one time. 
And then the most dangerous, scary one, no one will ever know. You ever heard that phrase, everything in moderation? It's a really popular phrase when it comes to dieting and weight loss. You hear it a lot. I have a friend, Kevin, who, who likes to poke fun of that phrase, and he'll say things like, really, everything in moderation. That's what you want to live by, everything in moderation. What about arsenic? Or what about rat poison? I'll have just a little bit of rat poison for dessert. But as long as it's in moderation, it's okay, right? Or how about just a little bit of pepper spray in my eye? Right there. But just in moderation. Just, just put it right there. And, you know, that's kind of funny and it's ironic. And, but it highlights the fact that really we don't want any of the bad stuff in our lives. We really want to be pure. You know, you can't be kind of pure. You're either pure or you're not. I was talking to Nathan McDade this week, and he said, you know, it's like being pregnant. You can't be kind of pregnant. You either are or you aren't. And it's the same way with purity. We can rationalize all we want, but that doesn't change anything. It doesn't change us. So are you rationalizing any sin today? You know, the Bible doesn't call us to rationalization. The Bible calls us to purity. James 4.8 says this, Come near to God, and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. By nature, purity means that we discard all of the things that make us unclean. We stop rationalizing. It means there can't even be a hint of sin in your life. And that's a pretty tough bill. It's so hard, in fact, that none of us can do it on our own. You can't become pure just by wanting to be pure. Gold doesn't purify itself. It doesn't come out of the mine or out of the stream as a ring. Somewhere along the way, someone has to come along and do the work of purification. And it's the same with you, and it's the same with me. We have to let God make us pure. You know, this verse highlights the fact that when we work, God works. You know, you can spin your wheels for a long time, working really hard, trying to be pure, but you can't do it on your own. And we can use all that same energy just trying to appear pure. Really not dealing with the issues or the sins, but it looks like you're fine. Last week, Luke shared with us about being merciful. And he helped us see that when Jesus was speaking about, about being merciful and about being pure, he was showing the difference between Pharisaic living and what following God really looks like. You know, the Pharisees did just that. They used all of their energy just trying to appear merciful, trying to appear like they were pure in heart. You know, those Pharisees, they were professional religious people and they were really good at looking really good you know what god doesn't care about what we look like he cares about our hearts first samuel 16 7 says this the lord doesn't look at the things people look at people look at the outward but god looks at the heart god cares about your heart. He wants your heart. Psalm 51 says this, that God desires a broken spirit 
and a contrite heart. He wants us to be humble and repentant. You know, God is in the business of changing hearts. It's all over the place in the Bible. Ezekiel 36 says this, that God will give us a new heart, that He'll replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And that is a great promise. So when are you going to stop rationalizing your sin? When are you going to stop making excuses? When are you going to let God do His thing? That verse we looked at a moment ago, James 4.8, it gives us a great roadmap on what our end of the deal looks like here. First, we need to do an inward work, and then we need to do an outward work. We have to change our actions and our attitudes. And first, the verse says that we need to wash our hands or cleanse ourselves. And that comes from a tradition in the Bible of cleansing ourselves when it comes to worshiping God. And sometimes that means you, that means you need to change your outward actions. You need to stop some of those destructive habits that are keeping you from being pure and ultimately keeping you from seeing God. Maybe there's places you can't go anymore because the temptation is just too strong. Maybe there's people you can't be around because you just can't say no to them. And you know, some of the changes that, that you need to make, you're going to need help with. Maybe you need to set up accountability on your computer. And sometimes those changes are so hard, you've got to go check into a place for a while and get some help while you work on changing some actions and dealing with addictions. The Pharisees that Jesus spoke about, they were really good at the washing hands part of this verse. They had that part down. But they missed the second part the part that talks about the heart. The second part says to purify your, your hearts, you double-minded. Another way that double-minded is translated sometimes is as two-souled, having two souls, two desires, attempting to chase both the world and God. You just can't do both at the same time. Kierkegaard says that being pure in heart is to will one thing, to have one desire, the desire only for God, the desire only for God's ways, to be one souled. So how do you begin to will one thing? Well, Paul gives us some great guidance on this in Philippians 4.8. He says this, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What we cultivate in our hearts and in our minds is going to grow. You know, the Bible says what you reap is what you sow. And we can choose to cultivate a divided heart a two-souled heart, or we can choose to cultivate a heart with one will, with one desire, one soul, the desire only for God. And the message version of this beatitude says it this way, you're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you will be able to see God in the outside world. And that's a great way to think about purity, making the inside match the outside 
When your attitude and your actions align and they're focused on God, focused on God's ways, then you'll be blessed because God will become visible to you. And you know, so many of us feel like we don't see God. We wonder where He is. But when you spend all of your time gossiping or commenting on Facebook and watching the news filling your minds with things of little value that only clutter your thoughts and consume your vision. It's no wonder that we don't see God. And Jesus says this to us, Blessed are those who take time away from those things, who fast from those things, who can eliminate those things, and then you might actually see God show up in your life. Blessed are those who value and strive for honesty and integrity, for they will know God's heart. And maybe you're thinking right now, well, that's great for all those perfect people. I just can't do it. I mean, there's no way that God would ever make me pure. I mean, do you know the things that I've done? Are you having thoughts like that right now? Have you ever thought that what you've done is so dirty or so bad that there's no way that God could ever make you clean again. There was a guy in the Bible named King David, and he committed some pretty big-time sins. He committed adultery, sleeping with another man's wife, and then when it became clear that she was pregnant, he had her husband strategically killed in battle. You know, David was also a really skilled songwriter, and a lot of his songs are in the Bible, in the book of Psalms. And Psalm 51 that we looked at earlier was one written by David just shortly after this affair and the murder of Bathsheba's husband. And this psalm says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin are always before me. And I know there's some pretty churchy words in there, but it just means I know that I've messed up, that I've really messed up, and I need your help, God. <laughs> Do you ever feel that way, that your sin is just always there right in front of you? that guilt is clouding everything you do and everything you see. David continues on, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. In that song, we see a broken man who's ready for God to do his redemptive, restorative, purifying work. David's ready to make some changes in his life, and he's ready for God to do his work, and he realizes that he can't be kind of pure. He knows it's all or nothing. When we talk about purity today, one of the things we need to address head on is sexual sin. Of the seven deadly sins, the one that this beatitude is typically paired with is lust. And you know, just a little bit of lust will make you impure. Sexual sin is what David struggled with, and it's a real struggle today in our society. 
It runs rampant. It's fueled in our culture and cultivated in secrecy. It manifests itself in affairs, both physical and emotional. It destroys intimacy through pornography and fantasy. It's a real problem, and it's one we need to deal with. Sometimes this problem is thought of as being exclusive to men, but we we know better. It's part of the fallen human condition. So it's helpful to have some strategies to help maintain purity in this area. There's a great story in the Bible about Joseph literally running away from sexual temptation. And then that story is reinforced in the New Testament where it says to flee from sexual temptation. And you know what? I found that to be great advice in my life. When you're confronted with temptation, it's best to get out of there and get out of there quick. Another strategy that a lot of people have found helpful is called bouncing the eyes. It's literally training your eyes to reflex away from images or people that will cause you to lust. And now these strategies, they they won't fix everything, but they're a good start. And there's lots more strategies and resources available. And if you need some of those, find a leader around here and they'll help you get those resources. You know, when we do the hard work of implementing these strategies, of washing our hands, cleansing ourselves, changing our attitudes, God will do His redemptive, purifying work in us. When we work... God works. When we come near to God, He will come near to us. C.S. Lewis tells this story in his novel, The Voyage of the Dawn Trader, about a boy named Eustace. And it would probably be fair to say that he lost his childlike innocence and purity long ago. He was a pretty obnoxious boy. And at some point, He ends up on an island with his companions and he abandons all of his companions and goes out on his own and then something terrible happens. He's turned into a dragon. And as soon as he realizes he's a dragon, he knows he's in trouble. And so he makes his way back to his companions and he does everything he can to fit in. Everything he can to be helpful, but it's not working. It doesn't change the fact that he's still a dragon. Before he became a dragon, he had this metal band on his arm. And now that he was a dragon, it was so tight. And it hurt so bad. And one night he woke up in just, in just agonizing pain. And he wakes up and he finds the lion, Aslan. And Aslan's the Christ figure in the story. And Aslan says, I can, I can take away the pain. But you've got to bathe in this pool. But first, you've got to do something about those scales. And so Eustace thinks, well, I'm a, I'm a reptile. I can peel this away. So he peels off a layer of his, of his scales, but it just reveals another layer underneath. And he's, he's still just a dragon, just now with fresh scales. And, and so he does it again and again. And finally, Aslan says, you're going to have to let me do it. I want to read to you how Eustace recounts that experience. He says this, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. 
So I just lay down on my back and and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. And the only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. And just as I thought I'd done the other times, only, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the ground, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I've been. I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. As soon as I, I started swimming and splashing, I found all the pain had gone. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. So, in your life, what's the dragon that you need to let God cut away? And you probably noticed in that story that Eustace had to do some work first. He had to change his attitude and his actions. He had to do an inward work and an outward work. And then God comes close and purifies. Are you ready to make those changes in your life? Are you ready to make those changes in your attitude and action so that the dragon flesh can be cut away? All the things that are weighing you down? <laughs> I want to introduce you to somebody. This, this is favor. Our pure, innocent child. And you know what? God calls you His adopted child. And He looks at you the same way, with the same affection that I look at favor, the same way that I look at my sons. You know, when all that stuff in your life is cut away, it's going to reveal the pure you that's underneath. You know, you're not a dragon. You are a pure, innocent child of God. You know, in a lot of ways, when God does His work, we become like children. One author said it this way, and it's great. It says that we won't become ignorant like children. We'll become innocent like children. And, and we're just ready for God to do that work. We're going to sing a song in a few moments, and we're going to say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you to cut away the scales Cut away the things that are weighing me down so that I can be 
your pure, innocent child. Let's pray. God, create in us pure hearts. Give us clean hands. And God, help us to do the work of changing our attitude and actions. God, we are so ready for you to cut away all the things that make us impure. Lord, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.